Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Well, the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has the country in shock and the small community in the Lone Star State devastated. 19 children and two teachers murdered in one fourth grade classroom by a lone gunman. 18-year-old Salvador Ramos is the alleged gunman. He allegedly shot his grandmother after an argument um, before taking her truck, crashing it into a ditch, and then armed with assault rifles he bought for his birthday, went to the school. You know, the term pure evil has been used a lot to describe the tragedy. We're appalled that something so heinously evil could exist in a modern-day world of high-tech gadgetry and abundance of wealth. And let's get to the heart of this spiritual query. Where was God in all this? Why couldn't God prevent it? Is it because he is not a good God or because he's not an all-powerful God? And also, what about the issue of mental health? Hmm. Instead of offering only thoughts and prayers, should the church be doing more to address depression, which is the leading cause of disability in the world? Well, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston has written about mental illness um, and the church and spiritual evil in his book, Unleashing Peace, Experiencing God's Shalom in Your Pursuit of Happiness. He's also written an op-ed you can read at foxnews.com about the tragedy in Uvalde, trying to answer the question, where is God? And Dr. Johnston joins me right now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lauren. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Before we get to the other part of this, I want to get to the question of where was God? And I think that's a question you try to answer in the op-ed, but then um, I think, you know, the issue of pain and suffering, Mm. making people turn away from God is is this question of, is God not all powerful or he's just not all good Mm -hmm. in order to prevent something like that? So what, what is the answer to that question? About a about a sixteen week course in apologetics. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting because it's let me let me take a stab at it if I may, and I realize that um, we need to be sensitive because people are questioning this right now, and yet we have to go to substance and get beyond the sound bites. Where was God uh, at Rob Elementary School? He was right there. He was there through the first responders. Let me tell you something. He was there through those two teachers that tragically lost their lives. Uh, God was not absent. It didn't take God by surprise what happened at Rob Elementary School. And God is the only one who can sustain us through this. The facts are because of the great catastrophe, because theologically and spiritually, we understand we live in a fallen world and it's getting worse, isn't it? People are more angry. People are more upset. People are broken. We're hurting. We need an answer that is beyond us. And so that's the power of the gospel that Jesus Christ enters our pain. He doesn't leave us alone in our pain. He enters it. He paid for our sin on the cross. He died for it. He rose from the grave so that we could find true life, true forgiveness. And yet that doesn't mean that evil ceases to exist. God did not create us, Lauren, as you know, to be robots. He created us with the gift to choose good or evil. And right along when we ask about the problem of evil, it's so important. This is why it does deserve a longer answer. We have to ask, why is anything good? What, what about the problem of the good? Um, if we didn't know evil, we wouldn't know there was anything good. And there's a lot of great blessings in our world as well that are unexplainable outside of God. And so, again, 
that's an intellectual answer, but there's a very real emotional answer when people are struggling. My, my sister lost a baby at 25 weeks stillborn, and she didn't really care about the academic intellectual answer. She wanted to know where was God and what was wrong with her faith and what did she do wrong? What sin did she commit? She was like the disciples in John 9, Lord, who sinned? This boy or his parents that he was born blind. You know, whose fault is this, Lord? We need an explanation, God. And or, for, for example, in John 11, when the sisters of Lazarus said, Lord, if only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people right now in Uvalde that are saying, Jesus, if you just would have been here, it wouldn't have happened. We don't see things the way God sees them, do we? We don't understand all we can cling on to. And by the way, we all want an explanation, but faith is not about faith and explanations. It's about faith and the promises and character of God, Lauren. And that's where I'm at. That's why I've been going to the 56 verses in the book of Habakkuk this week. It's what inspired me after my call with you to write the op-ed because it was pure evil. And remember, Habakkuk said, Lord, are you there? Are you dead? Are you dead, God? And we all pray way too religiously. We need to learn how to lament. This is a time to lament. It's a time to tear our clothes and sackcloth and ashes and say, Lord, where are you? And guess what we're going to find out? He was right there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can offer a peace that passes all understanding. And I'm so glad. Here's the promise of the Bible. Evil had a beginning. Evil will have an end. Jesus will be triumphant. And we are triumphant with him. One of the things that uh, people offer at this time, and rightly so, they offer their thoughts and prayers. Hmm. And one of the criticisms of the church is that they offer thoughts and prayers um, <laughs> in that it doesn't do anything. Um, why not do something a little bit more? Um, just your idea. Ju just respond to this issue of thoughts and prayers. Yeah. First off, people should be able to say whatever they want to say when they're grieving. And so I'm a, I've learned to be a very good listener and to allow people to grieve. Uh, we need to do a better job as the church of allowing people to process their pain. As a child, I, I would say anything if I lost a child. I'm not even sure what I could even say. Um, so first and foremost, there, there's no out of bounds when someone's grieving. And so we need, to, we need to have more emotional intelligence. What I can tell you based on the facts, when we get beyond some of the raw emotions, um, I would not want to live in a world that didn't send their thoughts and prayers to the victims. I would not want to live in a world that was just vibing my pain. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ right now is present with people in their pain in Uvalde, and they're better for it. And men and women of faith are going to show up and they're going to be there and fill the void. Because as we're going to discuss, uh, without the church right now, there's very little mental health available um, right now mm -hmm. to immediately assist those. And so I wouldn't want to live in a world that didn't offer thoughts and prayers. And, and also, I think it can be a little short-sighted because we can document the ways in which the church today is making a dramatic impact right here in the United States. For example, one half, more than one half of the food banks that are feeding homeless people, those are Christian organizations. I'm, I, I can cheat a little bit in your answer. I've written a whole book on what the world would be like without Christianity. And it's, <laughs> it's an unimaginable world. And we can trace that through the facts. But again, where my heart goes out, say whatever you want as you're grieving. Go ahead. And, and that's called lamenting. And again, there is no bad word when we're lamenting. God's a big boy. He can take it. One of the things that um, people probably don't think about is that perhaps the Bible does address the issue of mental health, um, mental illness, as opposed to a separate issue of spiritual evil. Can you uh, tell me if the Bible really does do this and how do we know the difference um, 
when the Bible is speaking of, about certain things. Absolutely. There is no question that the scriptures speak to the problem of mental illness. And this is what, again, causes me to see the Bible's uh, authority and its accessibility. It smacks of authenticity because it doesn't hide some of this embarrassing detail. Um, of course, the scriptures were written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Aramaic, Koine Greek in the New Testament. And so while our modern English might have different descriptors for it, the Bible clearly explains that people would be affected in the way that our translators, the best they could do it was they would be afflicted with a spirit of dot, dot, dot discouragement or a spirit of chronic depression as Saul was, who went on to be one of the seven suicides recorded in the Bible. And what's really interesting, though, is the, the scriptures show us that, you know, there's chronic depression, there's anxiety, there are panic attacks in the scriptures. But there's also just the junk that comes with life. Like, for example, St. Paul, Paul Lauren was likely a professional warrior. How can we know that? We can actually trace it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He's in Troas. He has a great ministry. He's lots of momentum behind him, Lauren. And, and yet he says, I have no peace of mind. And so was Paul chronically depressed there? Likely not. I just think he was a professional warrior. So I can, I can relate to St. Paul, by the way. And yet seven years later, he gives us the greatest anti-anxiety passage in all the scriptures, Philippians 4. But we often forget, Lauren, and this is where we have to practice grace for those who are hurting right now with Uvalde. Paul had been a believer 30 years before he wrote Philippians 4. He had grown in his faith. He had seen theodicy up close and how Christianity is the only religion in the world. I want to make this very clear. Our shared faith, Christianity, is the only religion in the world that even attempts an intersection to provide a response to the problem of evil. And that gets my attention as a thinker and as a person of faith. Well, let's talk about the difference between um, evil and depression, um, right. or spiritual evil and depression. Um, right. Because a lot of people kind of put those things together and it's all, you know, one big, you know, you know, conglomeration of, of mm -hmm. stuff. But how do you tell the difference between spiritual evil and then just depression? Right. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, there are some that don't believe evil exists. And we need to make this clear, Lauren. There are um, what, what I would call nihilists. That's a Latin term meaning nothing. There are professors right now at universities who don't believe you can call something good or call something evil. Um, there are some professors that would go so far as to not even admit the concentration camps were evil. So before we just skirt the issue and call something evil, we have to think, well, what are we judging that evil by? What objective standard is there of good, of morality, um, because we all can agree it is not right that we cannot protect children in our elementary schools. There is a significant problem. It gets us angry to the core. And so first and foremost, I want to call out these nihilistic professors that want to bring in relativism. And guess what? Relativism doesn't really work in the real world, does it? Um, you know, we don't want to go on an airplane with, that has a relativistic pilot who decides that they want to turn off the engines midair and reduce their carbon footprint because that's their truth. So how can we distinguish pure evil? We see it all around us. Humanity left to our own devices quickly descends into the law of the jungle. We see that we are more dangerous to ourselves than we are to even other people in a society that marginalizes God, stamps out Christianity. It's much easier to kill people, enslave people. Um, but to your point, so we see there that people are motivated by evil. There's no question, though, that sin and its imprint on our life 
if we don't deal with it, can lead to mental illness, addictions. And we see this right now. There's been a 51% increase in inpatient, inpatient hospitalizations, Lauren, among our youth this year, age 12 through 18, the majority of which are females. By the way, I've been really looking into that statistic of this 51% increase. I actually think there are more males than we care to admit. I think women just have a more um, educated emotional language. They have yeah. a better emotional vocabulary so they can actually admit when they're struggling, whereas guys really don't know how to do that and we need to do better. Um, and so we can distinguish it. And then we can see very clearly there is not only mental illness in the scriptures, and that's why I'm so frustrated we haven't been talking about it enough. This is the this is the number one question of our time. And if we're going to be Christian thinkers, if we're going to do, quote, apologetics, we have to make sure our faith connects up well with the questions our culture is asking today. I think this is the most important question that you're asking. What can we do as people of faith to help to fill this void of mental illness and mental pain? Everywhere we go, we're hearing about it. We now need to discuss solutions and the church can be a big part of that. Well, before we get to that, I want to actually kind of bring into the, you know, let's use this shooting in Texas because it's the most current. You also have the shooting in Buffalo. You have shootings. Right. Um, apparently, like what there have been 30 school shootings in 2020 already. So this is not something that's um, going to go away, unfortunately, right away by some sort of magic pill. Right. But the issue is, can you say that what he did is evil? Right. And does depression create a pathway to that evil? Yes, we can absolutely say what this young man did at Rob Elementary School is pure evil. It is demonic. It is wrong. There's no excuse for it. There are obviously motivating factors that go into the evil with which people act out in. Those can be addictions. We can see that video game addictions cause depression and higher suicidal ideation. Of course, social media as well. We don't know, Lauren, and I've written about this on Unleashing Peace. Psychologists cannot quantify the, the harm that screens are doing to our young people because it's uncharted territory. We just know that young men are more angry. Um, the most dangerous group right now, two out of three females um, are, are the college admits. So that means only one out of three are males. The most dangerous person right now in America is the young man who is not college educated, lives at home with his parents, is a loner, lives in a virtual world. These are the most dangerous people in America right now, and they're suffering from mental illness. And so evil begets evil, doesn't it? Addiction mm -hmm. begets more addiction. And so, yes, we can say it is evil. And yes, we can say there's likely chronic mental illness at play here as well. But obviously it was undetected. At least that's what we're hearing up to this point. That may change, of course, in the future as more as more details are revealed. But many struggle with undetected mental illness. They think it's just a bad day or this. And we don't realize that uh, mental illness and we should define it is a physical dysfunction of our brains that can cause us to cease, cease to act in a normal way that is healthy and also interact in a healthy way in our community. And so it is a physical dysfunction of the brain. The great thing is though the brain can heal itself through therapy and um, all kinds of steps, great medication. Um, so there is hope out there, uh, but yes, we need to recognize this is evil and no doubt motivated by chronic mental illness. So these two are, are, are then related. They're very much related. Depression, is, because not everybody who's depressed, you know, picks up no. 
automatic rifles that goes and shoots a no just like not everyone who's an alcoholic gets a dwi but these things go together and it's hard to parse out where one ends and the other begins but we know it's evil we know it's demonic but we also know that there is definitely mental illness at play here to want to kill your own family members and kill innocent children um i want to take a break right now on lighthouse faith podcast and when i talk when we come back, I want to talk about what the church needs to be doing more mm-hmm. um, to address this issue and and, and why they haven't been doing it um, in the past. Uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lighthouse today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash lighthouse. Betterhelp.com slash lighthouse. And we're back with Dr. Jeremiah Johnston on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And you know, um, doctor, you're talking about the church and the church has just not really addressed the issue of mental illness. Um, in the case of the shooting in Texas, what could have the church done? What could, what could have the church been involved with? I don't know the grandmother's, you know, the situation. I don't know if she attended church or if she, um, if they were, you know, Bible believing. I mean, we've seen a lot of times where right. you know people just kind of phone it in when they go to church, or they really don't understand. They're just kind of there for the social interaction, but really have not understood the gospel. What could the church have done, just in terms of like, was there something anybody could have done? Well, these are questions that truly only God knows. But what what can we see that makes a difference in our communities? Because right now. You may not be aware and our audience, you're, you're probably aware our audience may not be. The United States is the one of the worst places locatively to live if you're struggling with mental pain right now. There are other countries in the world that take it much more serious and provide um, all kinds of resources that we simply don't. The two de facto mental institutions, as it were today, are the emergency room and jail. Those are the two places that most people end up when they are having a crisis psychologically. And yet the statistics show us when someone is at an emotional breaking point, when they are having a chronic panic attack or schizophrenic attack or just mental anxiety, paranoia, uh, by the way, the most fatal of mental illnesses are eating disorders, by the way. So we want to mention that Um, the the number one place they call first is a clergy member a rabbi, a priest, a pastor, they get the first call. And so we don't know what happened with Mr. Ramos. We don't know what happened with his grandmother, but we do know that the church can offer a place of hope. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the people who bring hope. And unfortunately, Lauren, 90 million Americans like those in Uvalde, they live in federally recognized shortage areas where there is not a mental health counselor in a drivable distance that's convenient to reach. And so Mm -hmm. Uh, what fills the void? And I've written about this in my book, Unimaginable. 
353,000 clergy members across the United States who donate 10 to 20% of their time, which equates to almost 200 hours of basically free mental health care and counseling that pastors offer to their parishioners and to the community to fill that void. I do want to say this, though. What can we do better? I'm someone that has um, a few degrees. I have two master's degrees and a PhD. If you were to say, Jeremiah, how many courses on pastoral care and counseling did you actually take or receive in a Master of Divinity program, Master of Apollo, and then an MA in theology and a PhD? One. Wow. I have had to learn so much after receiving a terminal degree, how to minister to people at their greatest point of need. We are graduating ministers who barely can cope themselves. And that's why I think the church isn't discussing mental health. Pastors are barely coping themselves. Uh, the, the numbers bear it out. A quarter of our pastors right now are struggling with chronic depression and few know about it because again, as Christians, we don't gossip. We just share prayer requests. So who's going to pray for the pastor who's struggling. And so there's so much stigma. Of course, stigma comes from that Greek word stigma. It's the word we get tattoo from. Believers mm -hmm. today feel branded. They feel like I've, I've often referred to them as the new lepers. They feel like they have leprosy. Um, they struggle with what I call the invisible diseases of the brain. And so, again, the church is filling the void. We can do so much better. And I've also been in communities where the church gets it right. And so there are examples that we can learn from that, where the mm -hmm. church holds symposiums, conferences, events with NAMI, invites the police, invites the local hospitals, and they all discuss that this is such a stark issue. No one organization can carry the load, but we can all do something, and the church should be right there on the front lines. What, if you understand it from a biblical point of view, uh, even from a you know, medical point of view, what, what are the root causes of depression? Hmm. So many of them is, is not understanding first your own identity. It starts right there. We have an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. We don't know why we're here. We don't know uh, what purpose our life gives or to anyone. We don't know what value. We have no value. The second greatest reason, in my opinion, that individuals struggle with mental pain, mental illness, chronic mental illness, serious mental illness, is they have a false view of God. And I often meet with them when I say, you know, I wouldn't believe in the God you believe in either because you're not believing in the God of the Bible. You have a false view of God. And that God is like a cosmic accountant who wants to take you out the minute you do something bad. He's not the loving God that we have explained in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. And so those are, in my opinion, from what I have seen in the real world from Portland to Miami, uh, New York to Southern California speaking is a misidentification of self. Mm -hmm. And then a misidentification of God. And we, that's where anytime there's a tragedy, and I had to do this with my kiddos last night, we have to go back to truth, don't we? We can't rely on feelings or emotions. They will betray us. As important as they are, emotions will betray us. We have to have truth that anchors us. You know, um, there is, you're talking about it, and I think you talked about it, it kind of sense, but the, the relationship between depression and idolatry Yes. And one of the things that is very difficult to help people understand is the issue of idolatry. Um, and the Bible talks about it and warns about it, you know, so often. Of course, the first commandment, the first commandment you know, the, the, is all about that, is talking about don't worship anything else. Um, 
Tell me about this relationship between idolatry and depression and why that happens. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, our hearts, as Augustine said, we're, have a God-sized void. And anytime we essentially take God off of his throne and we put ourselves in place, and that's we should, we should define idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping ourselves in the place of God, because ultimately, if I'm not worshiping God, I'm worshiping myself. I'm worshiping my desires. I'm, I'm a pantheist. I want to do and or excuse me, I'm, I'm a hedonist. I want to do whatever feels good to me. I want to I want to engage in self-worship and self-gratification, self-aggrandizement. And, you know, I'm not living for God. That's idolatry. And so mm -hmm. when I fill my life with myself, my needs, my desires, my wants, me first, instead of living for Jesus Christ and having him on the throne, it will always lead to depression. It will lead to chronic depression because our world is broken and there's nothing good inside us, the scriptures say. Um, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? And this is why Jesus Christ had to come. We are broken. And what I love about this op-ed that I was able to put together was this prayer for Uvalde. God knows what it's like to enter the grief of every single one of us. He has, and he did it in the person of his son, Jesus. And he took our sin on the cross. He died for it. He paid for it, loving us when we were utterly unlovable. And then he rose from the dead three days later. And the power of the gospel is that when we trust the facts of the gospel in Jesus, we're forgiven. And that void is immediately filled with everlasting love that is Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says, St. Paul says, we have to every day. We have to be a living sacrifice. We want to, you know, crawl off the altar and we need to crawl back on. And that's where true joy, fulfillment, peace, shalom come from. And there is peace, Lauren. I was in Austin over the weekend speaking about this uh, in a community that's had lots of turmoil, two different locations, three service times, sharing the path to peace. The Bible says 550 times that peace, shalom, that is uh, holistic, uh, it's available to us. We can rest in this peace. When we have peace with God through Christ, we then can experience the God of peace. And that's why each of us, we need a peace plan. Um, Lauren, I can get really theological, but also we need to get really practical. We all need to develop, you know, we have financial plans. We have educational plans. We have social plans. If you have a family like I do, why don't we have peace plans? Why don't we sit down and intentionally take inventory of our life and say, okay, Lord, I know I have peace with you through Jesus Christ. You filled that void in my heart that would be idolatrous without you. But now I need to experience the God of peace. And I understand that Paul says that's a discipline and it starts with how I think. Logizomai in Greek. I have to I have to take record and, and, and make things true in my life. I have to reckon those things as true. And then we should write down these a personal peace plan. We should all have a care team. We should take better care of ourselves. And again, I think this is where the church can offer practical steps. Like I did Sunday where people are texting me now throughout the week. Thank you. My daughter and I have made a peace plan. It's already making a difference. So we can do practical things too. Um, I also want to get back to, I forgot to ask you this question, which I think is very important to talk about, because when we talk about depression, um, there is a level of clinical depression where the brain chemistry really is just changed. Totally. And, and that's kind of the kind of depression that, you know, we kind of think about as depression. And we were talking before about, you know, just the blues, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, and the Bible does address that. But what I mean... Is there any stigma? I mean, I mean, not stigma, but is there any rule against, you know, seeking kind of, you know, 
pharmaceutical help in, in terms yeah. of depression, taking antidepressants, is that, because that becomes a stigma as well in the church. It does. And, and Lauren, I have, I have logged stories that I would never share publicly in media that would embarrass certain people that we both love and respect and admire in ministry because of the stigma. There were some great ministers of generations in the past that would not allow anyone on their staff to engage in any kind of therapy that was quote unquote a sin. They would not allow anyone on their team to engage in any kind of medical help, be it medication, even inpatient therapy. And again, this is not the heart of Jesus Christ. Our brain is a physical organ and we treat it as we feed, as we, as we treat any other physical organ in our bodies. And you know what? The church is starting to shift here. I think it's right now worse for pastors and leaders. That's still persona non grata. You know, you'd, you'd, you would never get up in the pulpit. Many don't. Now, some churches are more accepting than others, but um, I am seeing a real growth in this area among believers and acceptance of biblical counseling, biblical therapy, because it works so well. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage anyone who's watching us right now, who's feeling a call to ministry, this area of biblical counseling, you will have a job in the rest of your life. You will have a book that's immediately filled because as I shared with you, Lauren, and as I've written, there is a 48 day average wait time right now. If you want to see someone, and by the way, the most courageous thing someone could do who's listening to Lighthouse podcast right now is to admit, I need, I need to go talk to someone. I need to develop a care team. That takes so much courage. And then when they finally have that courage to make that call, to be told that, oh, there's a two month waiting, waiting period right now. It, you can feel so dejected by that. And so we need more people on the front lines. I mean, it's tragic, Lauren, and we should get into the details of this. I mean, the, the average pay is pitiful for typical addiction counselors, mm -hmm. not just Christian counselors, but just mental health counselors. It's pitiful. And these people are literally on the front lines protecting us from things like what happened in Uvalde. And so we can do better there as well. And we should do better. I mean, I think that's, you know, also a question is, if it's not part of the church, I mean, can someone just be, can go get treated for depression and not be a Christian and not be, you know, spiritual in any way? Can you just simply address the physical need to, uh, the you know, the of uh, the taking yeah. the anti-depressant, antidepressants yeah. and be okay? Absolutely. In fact, the greatest thing someone can do right now, if you want to, if you want to experience, you can do two things right now. If you want to be a mentally healthier person, number one, go for a walk. Um, it actually is the cheapest therapy that we can do is to exercise for what it does for our brain. Number two, start keeping a gratitude journal. The most famous class at Yale University for the last I think three or four years is a class uh, Professor Santos uh, teaches, and it is a class on happiness. And they've had thousands of students, not just on campus in New Haven, but all over the world take this course in happiness. And so I enrolled. I thought, well, I could learn a few things. Do you know one of the big outcomes of the class is a great barometer right now of your mental health is your ability to experience gratitude. And so the professor encourages the students to keep a gratitude journal. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that something we as followers of Jesus call counting our blessings, focusing on what we can be grateful for? So those are two immediate at home steps. But then there is no question when we look at the science of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, things like neuroplasticity, our brains can heal. I'm fascinated to heal themselves. And God has created our bodies to heal themselves with, under the right 
medical care. Um, and I'll tell you something that I'm really excited because even though I've published in this area and keep publishing, I'm still learning. Right now, if you were to come in my office, what I'm really beginning to study is the power of placebo. When you think healthy thoughts, you're going to be healthier. Mm. And if you are constantly thinking negative thoughts about yourself, it is going to affect you physically. And the medical journals bear this out. And I'm, I'm not talking about like weird power, positive thinking. I'm not talking about Oprah visualization. I'm just talking about you will be physically a healthier person if you think truthful thoughts about yourself truthful thoughts about the God that we love and serve and truthful thoughts about your situation. You'll see an immediate, your immune system will get stronger. Your blood pressure will decrease. There's it's the power of placebo. And so I'm, I'm studying that right now. And this, this is for all of us who, you know, so many grandparents right now, as we're seeing Lauren, are surrogate parents. And we're, we, we have to just work so much harder to learn this emotional vocabulary, because especially for our dear grandparents, they were not accustomed to having these kind of vulnerable talks and being available at all hours of the day and night when our kids they always want to talk at the worst time, don't they? And yet <laughs> we need to experience that pain with them. And I want to really encourage, I'm a fix it kind of guy. I'm a type A guy. And one of the areas that I've really improved, I think in my parenting and hopefully in my scholarship and in the practical theology part, I want to learn to be more present with people in their pain and not just want to fix it immediately. And so I wrote a chapter called Practicing the Ministry of Presence. And I would just encourage people, if you know someone who's struggling right now, you don't first have to do it alone. You also don't have to be a mental health expert to practice the ministry of presence. Just being with someone and say, I'm going to sit here with you so you're not alone is powerful. This, this Don't ever underestimate the power of a smile. Don't ever underestimate the power of your presence. And you could think, oh, Jeremiah, is that, is that really true? Well, yeah. Uh, Don Ritchie, who just died in 2012, lived in The Gap, Sydney Harbor in Australia, saved 400 people from suicide. He was a vacuum salesman. He lived at the cliffs at The Gap, where one of the most famous suicide spots in the world. And he was, he was able to kind of tell when people were lingering, Lauren, a little too long at the edge of the cliff. He would walk up and he would smile. So would you like to come back to my house for a cup of tea? He was given the Medal of the Order of Australia, the highest civilian honor, wow. died in 2012, part of the greatest generation. And he said, you know, I don't have any mental health training, but I know how to, how to be present when someone's hurting. And so, again, these practical steps, I think that this is, this is a complex issue. We have to give people hope and practical steps. And that's why I'm delighted. Um, the FCC has worked with mobile phone companies, and this is a big uh, other news flash coming out of this podcast today. By July of 2022, I hate to date it, but by July of this year, we have a new three-digit number that is the new suicide prevention line. Wow. Now, let me put it like this. When I moved to Oxford to start my doctoral studies, we had a 12-month, or excuse me, a 12-week-old daughter, brand new parents, and I realized 911 doesn't work in the UK. And I thought to myself, Lauren, how do I call uh, emergency services if there's a problem with our infant? I literally didn't know. I called the local hotel. They said, oh, here in the UK, it's triple nine. Okay, phew. Never had to use it, but just knowing that number existed gave me confidence. Yeah. When you are having a, we've had to call the ambulance. Um, you know, we have triplets, as I mentioned, and they're, they're, they're triplet Texan cowboys. So we, we've gotten to know our fire department and everybody here locally where we live. Um, when you're in a place of a crisis, it's almost, a, 
I realized you can't even remember your birthday sometimes when you're in a true moment of emergency. And so having to remember a 10 digit number is not practical when someone is struggling at a moment of mental crisis. And so uh, it was this was approved in 2020, but it's finally coming online. In fact, I tried calling 988 from here in Houston and it works. And so mm-hmm. by July of 2022, this is for our veterans. There's a veterans line. There are different languages, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 988 is available. So that's another practice. You're learning so much on this podcast that just practical things we can take away with today. You can call it if you yourself, maybe you're not struggling with suicide, but you're worried about someone, call the line. They will help you. Now, here's the really cool part, Lauren. There are 200 crisis centers around the United States. And your call, when you dial 988, you are routed. You're not going to be talking to someone in Seattle, Washington, if you're calling from Alabama. You're going to be talking. I think there's almost, I think every state is, you can check me on this, but there's 200 centers. You're going to geographically talk to the closest crisis care center because Sometimes they have to dispatch emergency services, but usually too, it's, hey, let me give you some immediate materials. Here's a place you can go for help. Let let us send you these. And it's especially so too with our veterans. It's in Spanish as well, other languages. So I just want to, I am excited. Sure that we are so burdened about the mental health crisis and we, it is a mental health pandemic. And by the way, anxiety is just as contagious as any other pathogen. Those anxious thoughts can cause us to be unwell physically. And yet I do want to flag the fact that people are trying to at least create practical measures and solutions like 988 that we can walk through immediately. And we need to build on that momentum. Um, I just want to uh, talk to you just to kind of reiterate a couple of things just right. for the sake of, um, you know, our the piece that we wanted to do and ask a little more directly. Is there a difference between spiritual evil and, um, you know, depression and how do we know the difference absolutely there is for sure a difference of spiritual evil and depression because some of the finest christians in the scriptures also struggled from depression in second corinthians chapter one lauren saint paul said i don't want you to be unaware brothers and sisters of the affliction i faced he goes on and he says i have the sentence of death within me i don't want to even go on living that sounds like depression to me That's St. Paul. We don't call that spiritual evil. So there's definitely a distinction. And then there are people that are demonized. And I want to make this very clear because, again, I am a biblical scholar. So on this, I, I have authority. This issue of saying someone is demonically oppressed or demonically possessed, those are words that come out of later translations of the English Bible. There is not that distinction in the Greek New Testament. There's 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. And guess what? The only time that we're, we think of like possession or oppression and try to bifurcate and distinguish those, it's actually being demonized. And the scriptures make no distinction about that. So let me explain. If you're addicted to pornography, make no mistake, you are being demonized right now. If you are a liar, a pathological liar, you are being demonized. If you are addicted, and my heart goes out to you if you are, but make no mistake, when we self-medicate with addiction, I am being demonized. Demons are working through that to impact me, not only spiritually, but make no mistake, physically and mentally. And so is all depression connected or rooted in spiritual evil? No. Some of the finest Christians I know in this time, Lauren, who are people that you probably read, you probably have their books by your bed at night, 
have struggled with depression. And guess what? A few of them are actually on antidepressants. And it's the reason that they're so effective. They have a care team. They even utilize medication, not as a crutch, but because their brain chemically needs it. And they've been under the care of a psychiatrist and they're more effective that way. Um, but make no mistake, again, speaking as a Bible scholar, I can be demonized when I open my heart and my life to willful sin. And if I go down that road, the scripture actually says we can have a mind that is reprobate. We can have a mind where it doesn't, we call good things evil and evil things good. And so I have to be so careful. So I, is that distinction clear from a theological standpoint? I want to make sure I make that clear. Yes, absolutely. And then just again, just this idea, has the church done enough to address mental health issues in the church? Absolutely not. The church, and I love the church, the church is so powerful. It's the most powerful entity on earth. It's the greatest force for good on earth is the church. It doesn't mean that I worship the church, though. I worship Jesus Christ, and the church is a work in progress. And one of the areas that we have failed miserably, and this is evidenced in our youth ministries, Lauren, and you would have a lot of insight in this as well, just from a methodological standpoint of how we do youth and children's ministry. We have failed our children. We have failed our youth because we have not had the conversation about mental health, how it affects our spiritual lives. Not all mental health issues are spiritual issues. This is another distinction, distinguish I make. We can't pray away every mental challenge that we have. And again, this is where false teaching comes in. So we've, we've had false teaching in the church. I've, I have personally wept with men and women after I've spoken who had a Bible verse weaponized against them. I'll never forget a woman I met in Tulsa who she was told suicide is the unpardonable sin, which again, that's not a biblical answer. She told me after my message, I was the first person who gave a biblical answer that no, the unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ as savior. By the way, suicide is never encouraged in the Bible. It's never in the will of God for someone to take their life. In fact, we have a stopped suicide in scripture in Acts 16, when Paul says to the Philippian jailer, do not harm yourself. And so I often point people, we're not really asking the right question. I digress though. Acts 16 is a great encouragement to stop a suicide and do not harm yourself. And so we can say that to anyone our life, like St. Paul did to the Philippian jailer. The woman told me in Tulsa, she said, Jeremiah, I'm going to go home and sleep for the first time in 13 years tonight. She said, because I now realize my husband did not commit the unpardonable sin, but it was, an, he, she, he was a senior pastor. And again, suicide claims more lives as I'm sure you've seen than war, cancer, homicide, HIV, AIDS combined. We're all far more dangerous to ourselves than we are to other people. And I want to say this, we have to live this, lift this stigma because 48% of the people watching us right now and listening to us, Lauren, will have a personal struggle at some time in their life with personal mental illness and mental pain, 48%. And that is striking to me. So can the church do better? Absolutely. We need better education. We need more than just one class at the graduate level, but we also need more vulnerability. Vulnerability is a superpower, Lauren. And you know, it's going to, you know, it works when I speak. It's not that uh, in fact, it actually works against me in many places when you when you're announced that you have so many degrees or you're a scholar, what people respond to is vulnerability. Sure, I, I have the theological underpinnings, but let me tell you where I've struggled and where I've seen God's grace imprinted in my life. Let me see you explain to you where I've seen the church when it never should have had peace. It's brought people peace. And that's how I know the gospel is true. That's how I know it works because I see how it works in our communities in a world without the gospel, a world that 
uh, is without Christianity and survives by fortune cookie type thoughts is vacuous. I don't want to live in that world. I wanted to actually ask you again, one of the things that is um, a problem, I was just looking at the Bible, state of the Bible survey from the yes. American Bible Society and showed that there was a 10% drop in the number of adults who were actually reading the Bible. Yep. And you know, people who read the Bible don't always read it with the intent of thinking that it's God's word too. I mean, that's a right. whole other level. Exactly. But just your thoughts on the faith health of the general population in this in this country and how that really may be contributing to um, this despair, depression, and to an extreme level, people committing these heinous acts. Lauren, we have something for the very first time in Christian history and that we have individuals who would like to follow Jesus, but they want to be a Christian without having a biblical worldview. And what's interesting about the power of our personal worldview is we will follow our own worldview over against actual facts. That's how powerful our personal um, criteria is for belief called a worldview. We will follow our own personal worldview more than we'll follow facts. What do we see playing out right now in the body of Christ? I'm very burdened by this because it's the most exciting time to be a follower of Jesus. And yet we have people that go to Google instead of God's word. And as a scholar, as someone who understands the great evidence for our faith, there is more evidence available today for you to be a follower of Jesus than at any other time in the history of Christianity. It's absolutely exciting and fascinating. And yet we have the most biblically illiterate generations of all time in our churches. That's not due to lack of education. And by the way, we have many self-educated people as well, very successful in our churches. And yet um, they don't, they, they think mother Teresa preached the sermon on the Mount. Job is job. Psalms is palms. We don't get it. And we have failed. We've turned our sermons into Ted talks and again, does G did Jesus teach topically? Sure he did, but he also taught verse by verse from Hebrew Bible Septuagint. And so we can actually do a better job in our teaching. We can evidence the thinking faith much better than we are. That's why I'm delighted I'm now the apologetics pastor at Prestonwood Christian or Prestonwood Baptist Church and Dean of Spiritual Development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. It's something I've done for the last dozen years in my work through Christian Thinker Society. Um, everyone needs to be a Christian thinker, not just the Delta Force Christians like you, Lauren. We all need to be Christian thinkers and know how to fulfill that great commandment to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. And so without a doubt, when I don't have a biblical worldview, I become a dangerous Christian. I want to make that very clear. When I lose my grip on truth, I lose my grip on God. And I become a dangerous thinker because I begin to do syncretism. I kind of have a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of myself, a little bit of the world around me, a little bit of relativism and everything gets all kinds of confusing at that point. And so that's where, unfortunately, many are and they shouldn't be. And on the, on the point about Bible engagement, fascinating point you bring up. It, it reminds me, I love reading the Wall Street Journal, by the way. And I, I read an article recently that more cookbooks are sold today than at any other time. And yet more people eat out right now than eat at home. So we love to have cookbooks and yet we prefer to eat out. And that kind of reminds me, it's analogous to, you know, the $2.5 billion business that is Bibles today. Um, we have more Bibles selling, less Bible engagement. And as you rightly point, just because someone actually engages with the Bible doesn't mean they actually apply it, know it, or put it into practice. And so, again, we can do better. We should do better. Um, and again, I do believe that, especially Christians here in the West, 
They want to have a higher uh, intellectual quotient. They want to be taught how to love God, not just with their heart, but with their mind as well. So we need to feed that desire. I've never met someone when I've spoken who didn't want to own their faith more or be a better Christian thinker. They want to be inspired. And we, again, could do that with our preaching. And so when we are Christian thinkers, then we'll start addressing things like mental illness and like what happened in Evaldi, Texas, because we need to. Remember, Jesus asks over 300 questions in the Gospels. Questions were not off limits with Jesus. In fact, he asks more questions than he answers. There's 3,200 questions in the Bible, 7,400 promises. There's two promises for every question in the Bible. And so it's okay to question our faith. God's a big boy. He can take it. I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And um, I'm hoping that we've helped a few people uh, kind of process what has happened in Uvalde. Um, there are... It, it, at least maybe we can stop it from happening again. Um, mm. But um, definitely um, maybe we have an understanding, a closer understanding of what's really been happening in this world. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.